All right. Got a green light. Is that good? All right. Over the last month, we've been using Ephesians along with other passages of Scripture to address issues of the church. Today, I'll be continuing with that series and using Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. If you want to turn to that passage and stick a marker in there, we'll get to it in a, in a couple minutes. My task is to present a message on the marriage image of the church in Christ. And to do that in one Sunday is not going to give it um, the, the breath and time that it needs. Usually when this passage is used, and it's typically in a marriage uh, series, uh, it's, it's multiple uh, sermons. Uh, so to do it one uh, Sunday, uh, I'm just going to be uh, doing a very brief cursory in some regards uh, touching on issues, but we'll see how much I can get and hopefully it makes sense when I'm done. As I usually remind us when I preach or teach that we need to make sure when we're looking at a passage that we seek to understand the intent of its original meaning. What did the original writer mean when he wrote what he wrote here in Ephesians for today's passage uh, to the Ephesians? What did Paul mean for them to understand? Then we can start looking at application. And I think in some regards, each of the speakers that have been speaking over the last month has, has talked a little bit about what Paul's purpose was with the letter to the Ephesians. Throughout the letter of Ephesians, Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus that they are not the same people that they previously were before Christ. That's a main focus of, of what he's trying to remind them of and to tell them of. That the people they were before Christ, before salvation, should not be the same people and the same manner of living that they were previously. Let's look at a few examples. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A message that they've heard, but obviously needed to be reminded of, of what happened to them. Why are they different today? In Ephesians 4, in the first verse, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Down to verse 17 of that chapter. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And they were Gentiles. So he's telling them the way you were living, the way you see these other people in Ephesus who are non-Jews, you should not be living in the same manner. In the fertility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, and Ephesus was renowned for it. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in truth, righteousness, and holiness. He explains what they used to look like, and he explains what they should be looking like. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And lastly, down in 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Clearly, Paul is reminding and teaching the Christians at Ephesus that there is a distinct difference in the manner that one lives before Christ and compared to being a believer after you've been saved. We are to live in a manner that is in fact contrary to our human nature. And only possible through the power and by the grace of God. Paul in Ephesians 5 and 6 begins to show how this new way of life should look in the most common and basic institutions and relationships that we have as humans. That of marriage, parenthood, and the slave-master relationship which I would argue could be a similar relationship to an employer-employee in our society. Marriage is the building block of civilization. A 
society that does not honor and protect marriage undermines its very existence. Why? Because one of God's designs for marriage is to show the next generation how a husband and wife demonstrates reciprocal, sacrificial love toward each other. But when husbands and wives forsake that love and their marriage fails to be what God intended, when marriage fails, the whole family falls apart. When the family falls apart, the whole society suffers. Stories of societal suffering fill the headlines every day. The rioting, the, the drug usage, the uh, lack of marriage that is happening today, the divorce rate, the families being raised without dads in their homes or sometimes mothers in their homes. It, it destroys society. And as time goes on in the history of the United States, I think we keep seeing and reaping the effect of that. And it just gets worse. Now more than ever before is the time for Christians to declare and put on display what the Bible declares. God's standard for marriage and the family is the only standard that can produce meaning, happiness, and fulfillment. There is no other way if that's what you're seeking. Now, a person might be able to live a life in a manner that, similar to what Paul is calling the Ephesians to do and in relationships outside of a home, might be able to fake it. You might be able to show yourself as a good person. You might be able to show yourself as, maybe even give the impression to someone that you're a godly person, but be faking it on the outside of your family. But it's a lot harder to fool a spouse or a child or an employer who were around substantial amounts of time. Your true self usually shows eventually. It is these personal relationships that help us to see the true fruits of the work of Christ in our lives. Husbands, how do you treat your wife? Mom, how do you treat your children? Employee, how do you treat your boss? If they cannot see Christ in your life, then you have reason to be concerned. Let's look at today's passage beginning in uh, verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, be, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his wife and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. When this passage is taught, it's typically the wife, who is the one who tends to get the brunt of of the teaching in the series. But you'll notice that most of the text that we've just read is actually addressed to the husband. And then both individuals are given heavy responsibilities in the relationship. They both have things they're supposed to be doing to make it a successful marriage. While the Bible teaches that the husband and wife have different roles in the marriage, the husband is to lead, love, and help his wife become everything that God wants her to be. While the wife is to respect, follow, and help her husband become everything that God wants him to be. When one fulfills his or her role correctly, it makes it less difficult for the other spouse to fulfill their role. But is it easy? A lot of you are married. You've been married for a lot longer than I've been married. You, you know the answer to that. It's not always easy. Is the person to be perfect all the time to gain the proper response from the other spouse? No. But if the husband treated his wife as he would care for his own body, it's unlikely that he would be cruel or self-centered or unloving. That God appointed the husband to be the leader of the relationship does not in any way mean that the wife is any less of a person or that the husband should not discuss decisions with his wife or seek her counsel. And it definitely doesn't mean that he has the right to be a tyrant, demanding obedience and quick compliance in all of his own desires and decisions. And wife, when Paul uses the word submit in this passage, it in no way implies a difference in essence or worth. We see through the whole of Scripture that God has placed man and woman here to care for his earth and to be in these relationships, and he gives them equal value in his eyes. It does refer, however, to a willing submission of oneself. Submission is to be your voluntary response to God's will. It's a willingness to give up your rights to your spouse 
in this particular relationship, but also to other believers in general, which kind of gets us into the church context. If all of us only seek after doing what we want, when we have all these people together, what a confusing, self-centered place this would be. But we all submit to each other in various ways. We give in, we give and take in the relationships in our house, in our relationships in the church family. But we do it willingly. And that's what makes it work. John MacArthur said in one of his sermons on this issue, keep in mind that the wise submission requires intelligent participation. Mere listless, thoughtless subjection is not desirable if ever possible. The quick wit, the clear moral discernment, and the fine instincts of a wife make of her a counselor whose influence is invaluable and almost unbounded. What a great description, especially the longer you've been married. You start finding out how um, valuable of a helpmate your wife is when that takes place and helping you to make good decisions. Elizabeth Elliot, writing on the essence of femininity, offers a fitting summary of God's ideal for wives, where she says, Unlike Eve, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving, the Virgin Mary's answer holds no hesitation about risk or loss or the interruption of her own plans. And just compare those two Stories of Eve and Mary, the mother of Jesus. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Luke 1, 38. This is what I understand to be the essence of femininity. It means surrender, she says. The task that scripture gives to the husband is to love his wife. We see that in Ephesians 5:25 through 28. Just as Christ loves the church. He must be willing to lay his life on the line for her. He must cherish her so much that he works to help her grow even more beautiful just as Jesus works to present his bride to the Father without spot or blemish. How many of us go into marriage with that in our mind? I think in most cases, most of us probably went in and that, you know, we understood that you made sacrifices. We made sure it required love. We, we knew that it would require uh, a lot of give and take and submission at times. But to go into it with the thought that the husband is to help his wife grow more beautiful in Christ. In Christ's relationship to the church, he is clearly seeking the transformation of his bride into something morally and spiritually beautiful. And he's seeking it at the cost of his life. One implication in Ephesians 5 is that the husband who loves like Christ, it's not that he is Christ, he loves like Christ, 
bears a unique responsibility for the moral and spiritual growth of his wife. How are you encouraging your wife? How are you making it easy for her to be able to seek God's direction in her life and to grow in spiritual maturity? Which means that over time, God willing, there will be a change. The aim of the godly husband's desire for change in his wife is conformity to Christ, not conformity to himself. This isn't about what you want to see your wife look like in 20 years. Notice the key words in verse 26 and 27. Verse 26, it says that he might sanctify her. And in 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. And again in 27, that she might be holy. These words imply that our desire for our wives are measured by God's standard of holiness, not our standard of mere personal preferences, but seeking what he wants. John Piper says about this, what Paul draws attention to most amazingly is that the way Christ pursues his his bride's transformation is by dying for her. Verse 25, 26, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is the most radical thing that has been been or could have ever been said to a husband about the way he leads his wife into conformity to Christ in the covenant of marriage. And he asks, Husbands, are we pursuing her conformity to Christ by lording uh, uh, lording over it her? or dying for her. When we lead her, or even if necessary, confront her, are we self-exalting or self-denying? Is there contempt or compassion? If a husband is loving and wise, like Christ, in all these ways, his desire for his wife's change will fill to a humble wife like she's being served, not humiliated. Christ clearly desires for his bride to grow in holiness. That's the church, that's us, if you're a believer. But he died to bring it about. So brothers, John Piper continues, govern your desire for your wife's change by the self-denying death of Christ. May God give us the humility and the courage to measure our methods by the sufferings of Christ. And to this, I would add an amen. In verse 31 of chapter 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. This is where the institution of marriage is established, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul states in this passage that it held a mystery. In fact, calls it a profound mystery that was not previously understood to the Old Testament believers. When you read that text in its own place in Genesis, 
you probably also, without the knowledge of the New Testament, realize that God was talking about something else in addition to the marriage between a man and woman. When the word mystery is used here, it's not meant to be something that is a, a secret or a trick that's being done to someone, but that it's a profound truth that was previously not understood in the original usage of the passage in the Old Testament. That now Paul is explaining and bringing out. Paul explains it now that the Christian marriage reflects in an imperfect way the relationship between Christ and the church. When we look at marriage, especially a Christian marriage, we are looking at an imperfect glimpse of what Christ and his bride looks like and will be like in its holiness and in its completeness in the, in the future. Christ loves his church so much that he died for it. Paul in verse 33 then once again makes sure that the reader understands what he's talking about by saying, husband, love your wife, and wife, respect her husband. So he explains the profound mystery, but then he comes back and makes sure that they understand. However, this is still about marriage, too. Don't miss the message on that. Don't miss that the husband is to love his wife, and the wife is to respect her husband, or some translations, that's the one that the wife submit to her husband. R.C. Sproul offers some fitting comments on the roles of husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, If I exercise my headship over my wife in a tyrannical way, I'm not respecting my wife. If my wife gives slavish obedience to me without any love, she's not respecting me. The whole basis of the relationship is built upon love, cherishing, and respecting one another. When we see marriages that happen where the husband uh, it might be oppressive or, or controlling, and the wife is not able to respond the way they should, both of them are in the wrong in those cases. Understanding that there's some other things going on in some of that, but the perfect way would be if they are responding in submission to their roles. And the marriage relationship itself would be most blessed in that condition. I think this is exactly what we're supposed to see in the relationship of Christ and his church. Marriage is a model of Christ and the church. The letter to the Ephesians, and especially this section, makes it clear that marriage is based on grace. Over the last few years, Lisa and I have been looking at various things and reading various things and, and realizing while we knew what grace was and we frequently say that God has been gracious to us or he pours his grace upon us, 
that in a lot of ways, in raising our children and even in our marriage at times, we have not exercised enough grace to each other and to the children. As God deals with his church through grace. Marriage is based on grace. It works best when grace is present. Christ pursues his bride, the church, by grace. He obtains her for his own by grace. He sustains her by grace and will perfect her for himself by grace. We deserve none of this. As members of the church, we don't deserve what God is doing for us. We deserve judgment. But it's all by grace. At the heart of what grace is, is the treating people better than they deserve. When God extends his grace to us, he's treating us in ways better than we deserve. This is how God deals with us. It's how we should deal with our spouses, with our children, with our employers and co-workers, with each other here in our church body. It's how we respond to each other. It should be out of grace. I think a lot of us could probably do with doing some extra study on just what grace is. Because even as much as we do things for each other, I think sometimes our motivation may not be right. And it would be much more joyful for you and probably more of a blessing to the receiver of your grace if it was done for the right reason. As Christ loves his church and gave his life for it, so should the members of his church love Christ and be willing to give their life for him. This commitment, this, this, the real meaning of what this involves, I think is much clearer in other parts of the world. When you hear people suffering for Christ in China or Syria or Niger or wherever it is around the world, to be a believer in some places means your life is not going to be easy. You can be imprisoned. Your property can be taken from you. Your churches can be taken from you. Your life can be taken from you. Your restricted and limited but yet believers in these other parts of the world still seek to follow Christ Fox's book of martyrs is full of stories of Christian men, women and children who understands the relationship that they have with Christ and the cost of that relationship. When I was young, I remember a pastor in some ways, I think, woefully thinking and stating about how he 
thinks that in the United States, because we have no persecution for our faith, that we don't that we're losing out on something. And I and I I think the older I get, the more I understand what he meant by it. It's easy for us to take our relationship with Christ for granted here. But if you read any news at all, I think you're starting to see that there are people, Christians, people who are professing Christ at least throughout the United States that is is realizing the sacrifices that may be involved because of their faith in Christ. The courts are getting more and more involved with telling people who own businesses that they can't do certain things or can't uh, discriminate against people because of their faith. And I, I think that is it's the sign of the times. I think, I think it will get worse. We're waiting on the Supreme Court to make a, a decision right now that may have some pretty profound um, influence on our society. While we've been rewriting our bylaws, one of the things that we've been taking in consideration is, is understanding that there may be a time when we will be approached and asked to do things that's contrary to what we believe the Bible teaches. And to make sure that our, our, our bylaws have wording in it that allows us and explains what we believe the Bible teaches and why we are doing what we're doing. And further understanding that if it has to go past that, I mean, there, there's, there's consequences to the stand that we may have to take someday. And I think that's coming, unfortunately. But I think it's an uh, understanding that many Christians outside of the Western world already understand because they live it every day. And while I'm sure they're not going into it uh, without fear, without concern, they still are going forward, living a life in the manner that they are called at all costs. I would imagine, like myself, after hearing some of these things today, that you may realize that you have some work you could still do in your marriage. Hopefully none of us, no matter how long you've been married, doesn't continually try to improve on how you relate to your spouse, how you love on him or her, how you encourage them. If you're new in your marriage, I exhort you as your brother, as someone who has been married for a while now, never think that you are comfortable in your marriage and that you're doing the best that you can possibly do because you can always do better. Always seek to do better. Always seek to improve your marriage relationship. And I would think that 
we all can look at our relationship with each other and see the same thing, that there's ways that we can make improvements in how we relate to other people. How do we proclaim Christ and live Christ to all the people that are around us, but especially our our brothers and sisters in Christ who are around us frequently. If Christ treats us out of grace and with great love, should we not be living in a similar manner with each other, with our spouses, with our children, with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now this is where those of you who may be single can get some type of application from this passage, just in case you were thinking you were going to get off scot-free, hearing a message that deals somewhat with marriage. But this passage also talks about the church and Christ. And you're part of that. And How do you live? We have a vivid example of what a relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ should look like in this passage too. This seems to be an appropriate place to move into communion. Because of our relationship with Christ, you are a part of the church. If you're a believer today, you're part of Christ's body. You're a member of his bride. And he made that possible by his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection from the dead. Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us. And he's promised to return someday soon. And he'll gather all his people to himself and put an end to sin and death. This ordinance of communion was established by Jesus for his followers to observe regularly and reflect and remember and look forward to the work that he has accomplished on our behalf and what he will finish. As the ushers come and pass out the elements, I'd ask you to please hold them and we'll partake together. And I might remind you that this ordinance is for those who are believers. If you haven't given your life to Christ, we just ask that you let the plate pass. And then I would encourage you to come and talk to me at the end of the service. Maybe I can explain to you about why that is. Love by 
says that Jesus gave him instructions that he delivered to the church in Corinth and to us down the road. He says that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Thank you for coming today. There are some snacks in the back. Please, uh, if you have a few minutes, stop and visit. And uh, otherwise, have a, a blessed week. Come next week. Looking forward to seeing Bob back in the pulpit. And uh, God bless you.